The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is essentially a, an extremely chaotic two-month interval between the first round of voting and the second round of voting, where really, until this runoff happened, maybe a little bit earlier, no one could say with certainty that it would happen and that it would include Semia and Anila. This was really a display of the establishment using, or at least some members in the establishment, using everything in their arsenal to... To, to, to try to stop this runoff from happening. And if they couldn't stop it from happening, to stop Arevalo from, from winning the election. I'm Quinta Jurassic, a senior editor at Lawfare. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 28th, 2023. On August 20th, Guatemalans elected a new president, Bernardo Arevalo. His landslide victory was also a major win for the country's struggling democracy. An unexpectedly strong candidate who ran on an anti-corruption platform, Arevalo triumphed despite months of dirty tricks by institutional actors seeking to preserve the country's status quo. To discuss Arevalo's victory, the wild months that led up to it, and the challenges ahead, I talked to Manuel Melendez Sanchez, a PhD candidate in political science at Harvard University, who studies emerging challenges to democracy with a focus on Latin America. As he explained, Guatemala isn't out of the woods yet. But in a moment of worldwide anxiety over democratic backsliding, the Guatemalan election might be the rarest of things. A good news story. It's the Lawfare Podcast. August 28th. An earth-shaking election in Guatemala. One quick note before we begin. Manuel and I recorded this conversation on Friday, August 25th. And there have been a few developments in Guatemala since then. As of the afternoon of Sunday, August 27th, when I'm recording this, the political party UNE has officially filed a complaint claiming that election fraud took place. And Guatemala's attorney general has filed a motion with the country's constitutional court claiming that online criticism is hindering the Justice Department's ability to do its job and pointing to individual Twitter users, some of them affiliated with the Movimiento Semilla, Arevalo's party. It's a serious potential threat to the party and to free speech in Guatemala. With that, on to the show. I asked you on to talk about the results of Guatemala's election, which was held on Sunday, August 20th. So just to start us off, what happened and why is it such a big deal? So on Sunday, August 20th, Guatemalans elected a new president, uh, Bernardo Arevalo. And what's really exceptional in Guatemalan in the context of Guatemala, is that this is someone who nobody expected to become president as of a couple of months ago. Bernardo uh, Arevalo is an anti-corruption candidate. He is a progressive, and he's the leader of a small progressive party uh, called Semilla that, again, as of two, three months ago, was uh, was nowhere to be found in the polls and had very little chances of, of, of reaching the presidency. And so this is the the second round of elections after a first round in in June. And you've kind of set this up for me, but this this was not the outcome that people expected heading into that first round, right? Not at all. So this is this this first round which happened on June 25th was easily one of the biggest upsets in Latin America's recent electoral history. And so to kind of paint a picture for you, Guatemala has a very fragmented party system. So there were 30 parties that were clear to compete in this election, and ultimately 22 candidates make the ballot. Uh, 
for president. And for about three, four, five months ahead of this election, the story of this first round of voting was really the story of Guatemala's political establishment attempting to engineer the runoff they wanted. And their preferred candidate was Zuri Rios of the Valor Party. She's a conservative, the clear establishment favorite, uh, daughter of Efrain Rios Montt, who's a, a former general accused of genocide and other war crimes during the Guatemalan Civil War. And, you know, for, for weeks, for months, the narrative was this runoff is going to be between Zuri Rios, the establishment favorite, and Sandra Torres. Sandra Torres is now a perennial candidate. She's of the UNE party, which was established in 2002 as a social democratic party. She's a former first lady. And she's now, counting this election, run for president three times. And all of these three times, she has made the runoff every single time. And every single time, she has lost that runoff, usually to an establishment candidate. So for months, for months, the narrative of this election was... On June 25th, Guatemalans are going to vote. And on June 26th, they're going to wake up and they're going to have this runoff that has been pretty much engineered by the establishment between Rios and Torres. Arevalo comes out of nowhere. So a week before, uh, actually less than a week, days before this election, Arevalo is polling at around 3%, which puts him in eighth place. Right? You read these polls and he doesn't stand a chance. His name recognition across the country, according to the same poll, is somewhere in between 25 and 35 percent, right? So here's a candidate who, number one, is promising to kind of break this narrative of, of, the, of the predicted runoff, but also appears to have very little support, according to these polls. And, you know, most people don't even seem to know who he is. And then suddenly, on June 25th, big surprise, out of nowhere comes Bernardo Arevalo. He leapfrogs about six other candidates. He gets four times as many votes as the polls suggested he would. And suddenly, there's a runoff between Sandra Torres and this progressive, relative, newcomer, uh, anti-corruption candidate, Bernardo Arevalo. And nobody saw this coming. Um, I had a chance to talk to I think, you know, some people in, 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 in Semilla, in the party, uh, some people who were within the party who were looking at this very closely, who very much believed in the project. And I can tell you, nobody saw this coming, not even themselves. So it was a huge surprise all around. So over the course of this episode, we're going to walk through exactly what factors led to this happening and the the very wild ride that led up to it. But before we do that, I want to continue setting the stage a little bit and just ask you, who exactly is Arevolo, this person who comes out of nowhere? And what is his party, which is called Movimiento Semilla, which means in English seed movement? Sure. So maybe let's start with Semilla and then we can we can talk about Arevalo specifically. So Semilla, interestingly enough, begins in 2014 as what they call an analysis group. So this is a group of college professors and intellectuals and college students who are essentially getting together to think about and analyze Guatemala's reality. Then 2015 happens, and 2015 is a watershed year in Guatemalan politics. That year is marked by massive social protests. These protests happen in large part because it is revealed that the sitting president and vice president are involved in a major uh, corruption scandal. And eventually the protests force uh, President Perez Molina and, and his vice president, Roxana Valdetti, to resign. Now, it's as a result of these massive protests, this analysis group decides to basically leave the, univers the university classrooms and, and try to compete for the ballot box. And from the beginning, they frame themselves as, I would say, two things. First, as a progressive movement, which in Guatemala is a, a brave move. Yeah, Guatemala has, a, in general, a very conservative electorate. But they also frame themselves as an anti-corruption movement. And those two themes, I think, are there from the beginning, and they become very important in this race. Now, Arevalo is really there from the beginning. And a couple of things to know about Arevalo. He is a sociologist 
by training. So he's, he's, he has an academic training and he's really spent, you know, the past, at this point, the past two, three plus decades of his life working in diplomatic spaces, working on social projects, essentially building bridges, which again is going to become really important later on. Crucially, Arevalo is also the son of Juan Jose Arevalo. And Juan Jose Arevalo is a towering figure in Guatemalan history. He was elected president of Guatemala in 1944, uh, in the middle of, or rather at the beginning of what is now known as the Guatemalan Revolution. And especially for his time, Arevalo Sr. is this very progressive, very democratic president. And, you know, the Guatemalan Revolution and that experiment with progressive democratic politics uh, does not end very well. Uh, it lasts for about 10 years. But in present day, Arevalo remains almost this mythical figure adored by many in Guatemala. And so this sort of family lineage becomes a really important part of how Arevalo presents himself, how Arevalo Jr. presents himself, and really how voters see him. So that's kind of the the that's kind of the, the really quick version of, of who Semia are and who Arevalo are. But basically think about this as a relatively small but passionate anti-corruption sort of center-left progressive movement led by, you know, this this quiet, soft-spoken, really kind of boring academic who um, who happens to have a father that, that means a lot for Guatemalans. Yeah, I will say that I was really struck in reading up on this election how many of the main figures are related to uh, people who were previously Guatemalan presidents. So obviously Arevalo, his father was in power. We have Zuri Rios, her father Zuri Rios Montt. Uh, Sandra Torres is the former spouse of a Guatemalan president. Is the Guatemalan political class just really small? That's a good question. You know, relatively so. Although I would say that we could sort of do the same exercise for U.S. politics and be surprised at how many. Yeah, they're all Nepo babies. They're all, yeah. But, you know, I, I think what's important to keep in mind about the Guatemalan political class is that Guatemala does have this very powerful political establishment. And, you know, where that establishment comes from and what it looks like is sort of a long, messy story. But what's really interesting about this establishment is you know, there, there, there isn't really kind of a kind of a, a strongman at the center of it. So usually when we think about contexts like these, we might think about, you know, like, like a Bukele in El Salvador, or like a Bolsonaro in Brazil, even like a Donald Trump in the U.S., right? These tend to be sort of character-driven stories. In the Guatemalan context, I think what's interesting is that it's a little bit more like this loose coalition that brings together you know, what I would call sort of pro-status quo actors within the political sphere, within private the private sector, which is very powerful, within the military. So, you know, is the, is the Guatemalan political class small? I'm not sure. But there is certainly a very powerful political establishment. And it is that same establishment that has, I think, really championed Rios, for example, in especially in this election. And, you know, we can get into this later, but also learn to embrace, to embrace Torres. So let's talk a little bit more about the anti-corruption aspect of this, because a key part of this story is the organization, the Spanish acronym is pronounced CISIG. Uh, in English, the translation is the International Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala. So what is this? What happened to it? And why is it so important to the story of this election? Sure. So the so the SIG shows up in in two thousand seven, and it is a UN sponsored mission. And what it's designed to do is to support Guatemalan prosecutors and courts in investigating corruption, particularly at the highest level. So this is not a story of you know a UN mission showing up and replacing. The, the, the sort of justice system, but rather providing technical expertise, providing some diplomatic backup. And as I mentioned, this is in 2007 when the CICIG starts its work. And 
over the next 12 years, I think this arrangement works perhaps better than anyone could have imagined. So according to uh, WOLA, the Washington Office on Latin America, an NGO, over the next 12 years, the CC ends up working with local prosecutors to file more than 120 cases implicating over 1,500 people and hundreds of government officials. And so in a context that was really marked by impunity and widespread corruption, when the CC shows up, this is massive. This is, this, is, this is a massive development. Things come to a head in 2015, which we mentioned. And this is when CSIG-backed investigations basically revealed that the sitting president, Perez Molina, and Vice President Valdetti are involved in this massive customs corruption scandal. Uh, Q, massive protests. Ultimately, they're forced to resign. And, you know, this, this really shapes this year's election for a couple of reasons. First, this is, as, as we discussed, where Simia kind of really comes from. But also, as you can imagine, the traumatic experience with the Sisig triggers some fierce backlash among this establishment that we were talking about. So among entrenched political elites, as well as the powerful business sector. In 2019, President Jimmy Morales, uh, who himself was being investigated by these anti-corruption prosecutors decides to expel the CC. So they are forced to shut up shop and, and go home. And particularly from that point onwards, uh, Jimmy Morales and later President Alejandro Yamate, they essentially make it their mission to quote unquote, take back the justice system. Right? So there's a capture of the prosecutors and the courts by the political establishment. And so what you're describing going into this election is a country that it seems like is the democratic institutions are maybe a bit wobbly. Um, as you say, the justice system has kind of been captured perhaps a bit. And we'll we'll talk about what that looks like. It's a relatively young democracy. Um, there are a lot of figures like Rios who are sort of a callback to that earlier era where would you say, you know, to set the stage before the election starts, that Guatemala sort of stands or stood in terms of democratic strength or democratic backsliding? Yeah, I, I think I think it would have been very brave to call Guatemala a democracy, uh, say at the start of this year, in particular because, and we can get into the details, because prosecutors and the courts had been weaponized to essentially go after the opposition, right? Whether that meant political actors, parties, candidates, whether that meant the free press, whether that meant some of the anti-corruption prosecutors who had been doing important work with the CC. And so by the beginning of this year, certainly, arguably before, but by the beginning of this year, Guatemala was in a context where, you know, elections were going to be held, people were going to vote, those votes were going to be counted, but the entire context and process around those elections uh, was never going to be fair. It was never going to pass a democratic litmus test. And that's exactly what we saw, which is one of the reasons why the fact that Arevalo, a, a, a little d Democrat and, and an anti-corruption candidate won, is so shocking. All right. So so now that we've kind of set the stage, let's dive in and get into the nitty gritty and when we were talking about recording this episode, you mentioned that you'd found yourself using the term lawfare more than you ever had before to describe these goings on. And obviously, we're flattered as a publication of the shout out. But I know that you meant it in a different sense, the sense of kind of using law as a weapon. Um, so what did you mean by that? What happened in the pre-election period? Sure. So in the, in, the, in the pre-election period, so before the first round of voting on June 25th, this was really the story of different different courts and agencies essentially shooting down inconvenient candidates, inconvenient candidates for the opposition. And in almost all of these cases, the shooting down relied on, you know, very specific details of, of Guatemalan election and party law, which we do not need to get into. But it, it, it was very clear that this was, that this was an abuse of 
the letter of the law to to undermine its spirit. And so four candidates were eliminated. We could talk about all of them, but I think two are particularly important. So very early on, Delma Cabrera and Jordan Rodas, uh, this is in January, the candidates of the MLP party are disqualified from competing by the electoral tribunal. Now, the MLP is sort of a leftist party with a fairly strong indigenous component, which is really important in this context. So nearly 50% of the population self-identify as a member of an indigenous group. The MLP had come in fourth in Guatemala's previous election in 2019. So this is a serious electoral actor. Their ticket is disqualified because the vice presidential candidate, Jordan Rodas, a former human rights commissioner who had stood up for anti-corruption prosecutors and for the work of the CC. It is argued that, let me take a step back here because here's a little quirk about the Guatemalan case. To run for office in Guatemala, you need a special accounts court to give you a piece of paper that says, this candidate does not have any outstanding cases of corruption or embezzlement or anything else against them. And so Jordan Rodas, like everyone else, presents this document. But seemingly out of nowhere, within weeks, it emerges that, you know, actually the electoral tribunal checks in with the accounts court just to make sure. And lo and behold, suddenly there are two or three technical issues with this document and with uh, Mr. Rodas's sort of standing. And this is how he gets disqualified. During the next couple of months, there are a couple of other cases. So Roberto Arzu of the Podemos Party is disqualified in February. Then Rodolfo Castañeda of the Poder Party is disqualified in March. But then in May, we hit the big one. So at the beginning of May, out of nowhere, enters this fascinating character named Carlos Pineda. Carlos Pineda is essentially a populist outsider. He is you know, mostly a businessman, apparently with some shady interests who essentially goes viral on TikTok. He comes out of nowhere and he goes viral on social media. On May 1st, there is a major poll released that shows him in the lead, in very in the top place, looking like he's ready to not only win this first round of voting, but then, but then just take that run of home. It takes the Guatemalan establishment about 18 days to have him disqualified. And the argument there has to do with the party assembly that had nominated Pineda. And apparently there were some issues with, you know, the fine details of how you run this assembly and who has to sign which documents and which minutes. And Pineda appeals and essentially goes nowhere. So this is a moment, I think, when even those of us who are watching the process closely with some cynicism and some skepticism we're shocked, right? The brazenness of here is a candidate who comes out of nowhere and it takes this co-opted Justice Department under three weeks to just strike him from this election uh, to protect this sort of dream runoff that the establishment has. That is, I think, a major turning point in terms of the narrative. And so this kind of disqualification spree, for lack of a better term, is that something that we've seen before in Guatemalan elections, or is this really something new? You know, we've seen some cases, and including some of the characters that play an important role in this story, including Sururios and Sandra Torres, they have some brushes with, with these qualification, disqualification rules. So issues around qualification are not unprecedented. But I would say that never before had there been so many high-profile disqualifications carried out in such a brazen way and with such a big impact for what ultimately happened. And so I want to dig a little bit more into just the question of who was doing the disqualifying, both in the sense of, you know, the, the institutions involved, but the people involved, without going into, as you say, the, the nitty-gritty of Guatemalan election law. One of the interesting things you mentioned at the beginning was that there's not, you know, a particular strongman, there's not a Bukele figure, there's not a Trump figure who's kind of pulling the strings here. It's more of a sort of 
societal institutional class um, that has a interest in perpetuating the status quo. So who is it that's kind of making these decisions? Is is there, you know, a man behind the curtain? Or is this more of a kind of tacit agreement among the people who are running these tribunals that we need to get these folks out of the way? How explicit is it, I guess, is my question, or if yeah. we have a sense of that? Yeah. You know, it, it's hard to tell for sure. A lot of this happens outside of the public eye. But at least at this point, uh, the sense is that it really is almost like a bit of a more organic situation, right? So, you know, on paper, the the institution or the actor that disqualifies the MLP uh, is the Electoral Tribunal. On paper, the institution that disqualifies Carlos Pineda a few months later is a court. And then they get little, they end up getting little sympathy from kind of the high courts. But really at this point, it does seem to be you know, not really a story of, of, of a man or a woman or a group of people behind the curtain. At this point, it really seems to be this confluence of, of just networks and individual actors whose interests are aligned and, you know, who, who, who end up getting, getting this done. And so before we get to the first round, how is it that Arevalo and Zamia are able to sneak through without being disqualified since it seems like the institutions are just going around disqualifying everyone who might shake things up. Yeah, I think the biggest reason that Eva and Semia are able to sneak through is because nobody's worried about them. Nobody within this establishment thinks that Arevalo and Semia are a real threat. No one thinks Arevalo has a chance of sneaking into the runoff. No one thinks Semia has a chance of you know, winning a meaningful number of seats in Congress. And so this is, in a way, a blessing in disguise, right? They're not really in anyone's crosshairs. And, you know, I, I, I really think that's probably the biggest factor here. All right. So this, this brings us finally to the first round. Uh, we have a bunch of heavy-hitting candidates who have been taken out. Uh, what happens? What happens is Arevalo somehow comes in in second place. So Sandra Torres wins the day. She had always been expected to win the day. Remember this whole time, she's kind of sitting on the sidelines, knowing that she's almost certainly going to make it to the runoff. And what she's waiting to see and what everyone's waiting to see is which establishment candidate she has to face. This isn't at all what happens. Bernardo Arevalo shocks everyone. I think I mentioned earlier, he leapfrogs at least six candidates as per the polls. He was expected to secure about 3% of the vote. He ends up securing almost 12% of the vote. Uh, so that's four times what he was expected to win. And perhaps even more impressive than that, it's not only Arevalo who does well. His congressional candidates do extremely well. So but Guatemalan Congress has 160 seats. And Semia ends up winning 23, which is almost four times as many legislators as they had previously. And it means that they are the third biggest legislative bloc after uh, Vamos, the, the, the ruling party, which, has, which wins 39 seats, and Une, Santa Torres' party, which wins 28. So essentially, this is an extremely good night for Arevalo and Semia that nobody sees coming. And at least in terms of the presidential race, a very, very bad night for the political establishment. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime identity theft stalking, or even violence. I used to think this was silly, 
And then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had Lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule all you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash Lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Lawfare. So at this point, the field narrows to Arevalo and Torres. And now that we have a bit more of a spotlight on Torres, I thought it might be useful to kind of dwell on her a little. You mentioned she's a kind of a perennial candidate. Who is she? What's her ideology? Why is it that the Guatemalan political establishment would seemingly have been comfortable with her in power? Sure. So Sandra Torres is sort of a has been a permanent fixture, uh, more or less, in Guatemalan politics since at least 2008. So she serves as she, she kind of really uh, starts to develop her following during the presidency of her former husband, Alvaro Colom. And Alvaro Colom serves as president between 2008 and 2012. He frames himself as a social democrat, and his promise is, is to fight poverty and, and inequality. Now, while serving as First Lady, Torres sort of really takes leadership and ownership over the government's social programs. And what this does is that it helps her build a very strong base of support in poorer regions, and in particular in, in Guatemala's interior, so in the rural regions. Now, after the colonial presidency ends, the two decide to separate, and Torres runs for president in 2015, and then again in 2019. Both In both of those races, you know, with some nuances and some differences, but Torres is essentially positioning herself as sort of a center-left candidate, uh, to some extent still remaining loyal to the social democratic origins of the UNE, his, uh, the, the Colum presidency focus on uh, social programs, on, on addressing inequality, on addressing the needs of poorer people and rural areas. As we mentioned earlier, in both of those occasions, she makes the runoff and then loses the runoff. The conventional wisdom about Torres is that this strategy, right, which is, again, sort of center-left, relying a lot on rural support, and also on clientelism and vote-buying, the conventional narrative is that this strategy gives her sort of, if you will, kind of a high floor, but also a low ceiling. So the strategy basically guarantees that she's going to have enough support to make a runoff, but it also guarantees that she's never going to have enough support to ever win the election. And so this time around, Torres takes a different approach. So she takes a hard pivot to the right. She reframes herself as really a social Christian conservative. She goes as far as choosing an evangelical minister as her vice presidential candidate. You know, before the first round, I think she was the sort of candidate who the establishment could imagine themselves embracing. I don't think they did. But pivoting toward the right, I think, helped her make helped make her a lot more palatable for this establishment. It's after the runoff when suddenly the establishment doesn't have a candidate in, in, in the second round that the two really come together. But that is sort of a very brief bio of, of Sandra Torres, who again is a, a really important and, and fascinating character in Guatemalan politics for you know, uh, over two decades now. All right. So now we've we finished the first round. What happens between the first round and the runoff? It's it's not exactly a smooth ride. No, everything happens between those two. To get a sense of the intensity and the chaos of what happens after the first round, I think it's actually useful for me just to like shoot some 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 timeline items at you. So on June 25th, the elections happen. On June 26th, Guatemala wakes up and the results are crystal clear. There is very little evidence of any sort of, you know, shenanigans. This is going to be a Torres-Arevalo runoff. Almost immediately, a number of actors turn to the courts to demand a recount. So on June 30th, that's five days after the election. On June 30th, nine political parties, including UNE, 
Senadores' party and Vamos, the, the, the sitting president's party, they present a lawsuit to the constitutional court saying that there have been mass irregularities and essentially asking for a recount. On July 1st, the constitutional court orders an audit. So not a full recount, but an audit. And this sort of triggers an audit madness that goes on for about 10 days. And this is you know, somewhat of a tense process. The OAS, the Organization of American States, will later point out that there seem to be no clear rules in place for how to carry this out, which led to some ugly confrontations between party representatives and the citizen volunteers who are actually doing this audit. But anyway, this goes on for about 10 days, and it doesn't flip the outcome. Actually, it somehow ends up benefiting Semia. So Semia comes out of this, of this, not a recount, but an audit, in, if anything, in a stronger position. So th- th- this recount effort seems to fail. Next, a number of actors turn to prosecutors in an effort to disband the party, to disband Semia. So on July 12, which is, if I remember correctly, about 24 to 48 hours after the audit had ended, Rafael Curruchiche, this really important character in the story, he's the special anti-corruption prosecutor, Rafael Curruchiche. Rafael Curruchiche announces that he's taking legal action against Semilla for allegedly falsifying some membership signatures and for possible money laundering. And then almost immediately on that same day, a judge who is, let's say, very friendly with the establishment, Judge Freddy Orellana, at Curruchiche's request, orders the electoral authority to disband Semilla, to erase it from the face of the earth. Uh, saying that Semilla can no longer compete in any electoral processes, which one assumes includes the runoff, and that any elected officials are not allowed to take office. The following day, July 13th, the Electoral Tribunal, and this I think surprises everyone a little bit, the Electoral Tribunal has received this order to basically eliminate Semilla and Arevalo, and they say, no, we're not going to do this. Uh, They point in part to, uh, again, this becomes important for what happens next. They point to this provision in Guatemalan electoral law that says you can't suspend a party while an electoral process is already in place. And in this case, it is. But anyway, the electoral tribunal somehow takes a stance. The constitutional court, again, possibly also surprising some of us, decides to side with the tribunal and say, you're right, you can't disband Semia right now. However, at the same time, it gives the green light for prosecutors to continue investigating the party and building its case. Also on this day, on July 13th, prosecutors actually raid the offices of the electoral authority, not for the last time. So at this point, it's July 13th. All this has happened between June 25th and July 13th. It seems like efforts to uh, use the courts to demand a recount and overturn the election have failed. It seems like efforts to use prosecutors to disband the party have failed, at least for now. And so what seems to happen is now a shift to using prosecutors and courts to intimidate the electoral authorities and also the Semilla party. So on July 20th, prosecutors order an arrest warrant against one of the electoral workers who would have been in charge of banning Semilla and decided not to. And it also raids the electoral tribunal's offices for the second time. The following day, on July 21st, prosecutors raid the Semilla headquarters. And a few days later, on July 27th, the, the prosecutors ask the tribunal for personal information on some of the employees who were tasked with digitizing the results in what was widely seen as an effort to, you know, get a blacklist and figure out how, how to intimidate these, these electoral workers in the run-up. We also now know, as of about 24 hours ago, that during this period, there was at least one plot to assassinate Bernardo Arevalo and his running mate. And as you can imagine, throughout all this, there are dozens of lawsuits flying around. There is online and in-person harassment and threats. 
There are rumors of impending arrests almost every day. At one point, Arevalo wants to leave the country to go on some, on some personal business. He decides not to because he's certain that prosecutors are going to arrest some of his party members. And in addition to all this, there is some pretty serious social mobilization. So protests outside of main prosecutor's office. This is essentially a, an extremely chaotic two-month interval between, between the first round of voting and the second round of voting, where really, until this runoff happened, maybe a little bit earlier, no one could say with certainty that it would happen and that it would include Semilla and Arevalo. This was really a display of the establishment using, or at least some members in the establishment, using everything in their arsenal to, 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 to try to stop this runoff from happening. And if they couldn't stop it from happening, to stop Arevalo from, from winning the election. Yeah, so I want to hit pause for a second and just uh, ask you more about this assassination plot. Because, you know, so far we've been in the realm of, I think it's fair to say, you know, dirty tricks, uh, lawfare in the the colloquial sense of the term, uh, but not assassinations. Um, So tell me a little bit more about what's come out about that. And I think also important context for this is before, right before the Guatemalan vote, there was also a presidential candidate in Ecuador who was assassinated as well. So Obviously, the two countries have very different political situations, but this isn't like an idle threat. This is something that the police end up taking quite seriously. Yeah, so I, I, I should say the, the details about these plots are, are still kind of blurry. There had been rumors about plots basically since, since the first round of voting happened. But we, we, we now have some form of confirmation that these plots seem to have been real, seem to still be real. Because yesterday, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights released a statement uh, basically saying that these plots were out there and, and asking the Guatemalan state to take measures to, to protect Arevalo and Karina Herrera, his running mate. So what we know, uh, it, it appears that, they, that there were two different plots. One seemed to involve, again, we're, we're really not sure about this, but one seemed to involve, at least in part, some state actors and seemed to begin unfolding very soon after that first round of voting in July. And the second appears to involve uh, members of gangs. Uh, one would assume this is probably referring to the Mara Salvatrucha, the MS-13, but we don't know that for sure. One would assume that, that that's who, who, who this involves. The timeline for that is for that second plot is sort of fuzzy. According to this to this this report of the Inter-American Human Rights Court, Arevalo was actually pulled aside by Guatemalan prosecutors after he had won the runoff that same night, I believe, and told about this plot against his life. Now, interestingly, you're right. Uh, so so Fernando Villavicencio, an Ecuadorian presidential candidate is gone down on August 9th. And in this report, again, that, that was just released, there is some clear evidence that as soon as that happens, the Guatemalan state basically goes, oh my God, and basically doubles down on, on protection for, for Arevalo and, and, and Herrera. So, you know, this is a regional context in which the idea of assassinating a candidate is not sort of ridiculous. It's not otherworldly. And it sounds like, from what we know, it sounds like the Guatemalan state, as well as these candidates, took it very seriously. So let's talk about the runoff itself. One of the things that's really striking about it is not just the Arevalo won, but he won by a pretty significant margin. Um, so what do the results look like? Yeah, so Arevalo is able to win with 58% of the vote. Torres secures just over 37% of the vote. This is, you know, almost by any standard, this is a, this is a landslide, uh, especially when you consider 
sort of everything that uh, Arevalo and Semilla were up against in this in this crazy period between between the first round and the second round. I will say from basically the very beginning of this runoff period, all of the evidence we had on public opinions, surveys, interviews, all that stuff, it showed that this was the likely outcome. It showed that if the election happened, if Arevalo was on the ballot, and if people were allowed to vote freely and have those votes counted, that we would see a result similar to this. The one big question mark in addition to is this happening, assuming that it happens and Arevalo's on it, the one big question mark was, given that Torres would now have the support of the establishment and in particular of the ruling party, would that give her access to enough of a machine, enough of a sort of vote buying and voter mobilization machine to be able to close that gap? And what these results suggest is that ultimately that did not happen. But yeah, long story short, Arevalo wins big. He basically gets 60% of the vote to Torres's 40%. And so, as you say, this seems like an incredible win for Guatemalan democracy on a number of levels. Um, I don't want to ask you to predict the future because given how uh, hectic the last few months have been predicting even a few weeks out seems like a fool's errand. But, you know, from the position of today versus where you were standing before the June runoff, how do you feel about the strength of Guatemalan democracy? Is it in a better shape now than it was before? I think it's in the more hopeful place. There are a couple of reasons. I think one, just the election of this candidate and this party that, as far as anyone can tell, are true Democrats, right? And they're and they're and they're true believers in combating corruption. And they seem to have some of the tools to do that. So that is, I think, one big win. That is one big reason to be optimistic about Guatemala's democracy. There's a second reason, which you know requires a little bit more nuance, but you know, there was basically a doomsday scenario for August 21st, which is the day after the runoff, right? There was a scenario in which, maybe even more so than after that first round, there was a scenario in which the establishment could really come out and throw everything it had at somehow overturning the election or otherwise making sure that Arevalo and Semilla never actually, never actually take over. Now, that could still happen, and there are some hints that at least some actors are still pushing for that, and we can talk about that. But the past few days, this past week, it hasn't really been that doomsday scenario, right? So, for example, uh, President Yamate appeared to congratulate Arevalo and to commit to a transition really quickly. That's a really strong sign. That was a big question mark. How would President Yamate react? So... I do feel more optimistic. I, I, I think that Arevalo and by extension, really Guatemalan democracy still has two big challenges. One is making sure this transition happens and happens smoothly. And the other is once Arevalo is in power, making sure that he's able to, you know, stay in power for the duration of his term and, and, and maybe get some things done. So happy to dive into either of those. But in general, I think... I'm a lot more optimistic and hopeful about Guatemalan democracy than I was, you know, on June 24th, the day before the the first round of voting. Yeah. So let's talk about the upcoming transition. What are the challenges that Arevalo is facing before he comes into office? Yeah. So I'm going to give you another shout out. The the, the danger really is more lawfare, right? (laughs) So... You know, let, let, let's talk briefly about what's already happened and then something that's something that still could happen. So the, the, the same prosecutors who, who were behind the post-first round madness, they, you know, have now asked the electoral tribunal again for a list of names of workers. Sandra Torres has been silent. She has not said a word since August 20th. This may have changed in the past 40 minutes since we've been talking. I don't think she has. Her party released a statement that said, you know, essentially, uh, reading between the lines, that said, hey, we don't trust the results of this election. 
and uh, we're waiting to see what the courts say. And, you know, and there's been a couple of other sort of movements like that going on. So there's already some signs that there could be that there could be judicial judicialization. Sorry, of this process uh, still ahead of us. There's a couple of tactics the establishment could use, or to put it differently, there's a couple of clear threats to to Arevalo. Some of them might kind of seem a little far out, um, but they're all real. So the first is that the prosecutors and courts will now redouble their efforts to disband Semia, to disband his party. And so remember, when when Judge Oriana asked the Electoral Tribunal to disband Semia ahead of the runoff, the Electoral Tribunal said, we can't do that because the law says we can't disband the party while an election is still taking place. Well, this electoral process is essentially over. So there's a good chance that in the next few weeks, and there's been some signaling of this, there's a good chance that in the next few weeks there will be an attempt to make sure uh, Samia is disbanded. The implications of that are not completely clear. Uh, the most obvious implications would happen at the level of Congress. So Semia's elected Congress people would become independent legislators, which really limits their ability to you know, participate in, in, in congressional life, basically, which would be a blow to Arevalo before he even uh, takes office. It's unclear what that would mean for Arevalo himself. There's a possibility that as part of this process of attempting to disband the party, that some Semilla leaders could be arrested. That would require, in, in some of these cases, congressional approval. But that's kind of one, one dimension. So, so basically going after the party. It's not unthinkable that there will be some efforts to you know, try to trigger another sort of audit of the votes or recounts. To me, that sort of seems like a lost cause at this point because the margin is so big and there's essentially no evidence of, you know, this election being rigged in any way. That could still happen. And then we sort of start to enter territory that might really seem, might really seem to be out of the box. Um, but in this context, it is not unthinkable, right? So... For example, um, some pretty powerful people in the Guatemalan far right have for weeks now been pointing out that uh, Bernardo Arevalo was born in Uruguay. And that's true. Bernardo Arevalo was born in Uruguay uh, when his parents uh, were exiled there. And so there's been some signaling that this could be a fact that, that you know the establishment could use to try to somehow make the argument that Arevalo is constitutionally prohibited from, from taking office, which, by the way, he isn't. But remember, this is a context in which some courts and some prosecutors have become very good at, at, at interpreting laws in specific ways to achieve their political objectives. So those are some scenarios. I'm sure there's, there, there are other ways that the establishment could try to stop this from happening. My sense right now, if, if I had to bet on it, which, by the way, Never bet on what's going to happen in Guatemala. But if you hold a gun to my head and force me to bet on it, I would say that Arevalo will probably make it to, uh, to his inauguration. I think he will probably make it to January 14th and, and become president. But it, it really remains to be seen. Right. And then, of course, there's the question of uh, what he'll be able to get done while he's in office. Because from everything you said, it kind of seems like he'll have his work cut out for him. Absolutely. So... Arevalo is, you know, assuming Semilla is around and his legislators are allowed to, to, to be sworn in and to stay in Congress, he's going to have 23 out of 160 legislators. And Vamos and Une together are going to more than double the size of Semilla's block. The Guatemalan Congress is also full of these smaller parties that are either allies or satellites, or in some cases, family members of, of Ramos and Nune. 
And so I think he's going to find it very hard to build a workable coalition in Congress. In addition to that, the establishment is still going to exercise a lot of power through these prosecutors, through these courts, through more conservative sectors of, of the private business sector, which again is very powerful in Guatemala, and even in, in the military and in law enforcement. So he's going to be very much a minority president who is going to be facing off against some very powerful, deeply entrenched interests and who has promised to clean up this, this establishment and this corrupt system. So he absolutely has his work cut out for him. I think a lot of how that goes will depend on his ability to form coalitions, both sort of political coalitions, you know, with, with other actors and other, and other parties. But even beyond kind of strictly political coalitions, is he able to keep public opinion on his side? Is he able to keep the international community engaged and on his side? Is he able to build a working relationship with more moderate sectors in the private sector, in the military? I think all of these things are going to be critical. There is a world in which, you know, Arevalo has an extremely hard time getting anything done right off the bat. There is a world in which this all sort of spirals and he's unable to see out his term. Again, very difficult to say whether that will happen. It would be, I think, bad overall for Guatemalan democracy if that were to happen. But yeah, he has his work cut out for him. I want to close by sort of zooming out a little bit on the map and situating what's going on in Guatemala, not only within Latin America, but frankly, with the, the hemisphere as a whole, we'll include the United States here. North and South and Central America are kind of having this moment right now of democratic decline, of struggle, of violent populism in some cases, including in El Salvador, Guatemala's neighbor, which we've talked about. How would you situate the goings-on in Guatemala in that context? Is this a sort of an outlier story insofar as it seems like it's a you know, cautious victory for democracy, knock on wood? Is it a, a story of a country that's going through some of the struggles, obviously, with the sort of appropriate, you know, national and regional variation that a lot of its neighbors are going through? Where would you situate this? Yeah, you know, I think what's most interesting is, you're right, as in many other places across the region, Guatemalans were essentially over the political status quo, right? They were exhausted with the establishment, with the political system. They felt that successive democratic governments, uh, some more democratic than others, had failed them, uh, hadn't been able to solve the issues that mattered. And I think what should give us hope coming out of Guatemala is that this is an example in which all of that frustration and that public discontent could be channeled into a candidate and a party and a project that, yes, promised to clean up, yes, position themselves as anti-establishment, but are also true Democrats, and they are institutionalists, right? These aren't folks who are promising to burn everything down, to eliminate checks and balances, as we've seen in other places. These aren't folks who are, you know, promising extremely radical policies on crime, for example, as we've seen in El Salvador. This is almost like a, like a more democratic institutional model to deal with frustrations with democracy. And because those frustrations are present almost everywhere in the region, I would hope that this becomes a model for other democratic actors across Latin America to learn from. Whether that becomes the case, I think, is hard to tell. Whether a model like Semilla and Arevalo work elsewhere, I think, is really hard to tell. We have to be conscious that, you know, as we mentioned earlier, a lot of this was, for lack of a better term, it was luck, right? It was, it was Arevalo and Semilla sort of flying under the radar and then being ready at the right moment. But 
to me, as, as a scholar of Latin American democracy and as a Latin American myself, it certainly gives me hope. And I, I, I hope that, you know, leaders and politicians in other places learn from this and try to emulate some of the better, better parts of what Arevalo and Semilla have done. Let's leave it there. Manuel, thank you so much for joining us. Sure, absolutely. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in Guapo. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Operation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org slash support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell. And your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs> 